to finish up with our study uh, in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra as we go through our series, Christ of the Book. And in Nehemiah and in Ezra, uh, he is the great restorer. He is the great restorer, or he is the promise fulfiller. In the book of Nehemiah and in Ezra, we see the Lord Jesus as he fulfills his promises to the nation of Israel that they would return to the promised land. Now, we need to remember that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah at one time were one book. And so it's the historical uh, things that take place and the characters and all are pretty much the same people. At one time, it was one book. Now, I know over the last couple of months, uh, we have concentrated pretty much on the sins and the unbelievable rebelliousness of the nation of Israel, both in the northern county, uh, in the northern kingdom, and the southern southern kingdom uh, of Israel, Samaria, and the southern kingdom being Judah. We've talked about the prophets continually pleading with the nation of Israel to repent. But the end result of that pleading was severe judgment on the nation, and then Judah going into captivity for 70 years because of their sin, because of their disregard for the law of God, for following after God, and going after strange gods. That is what got them in the predicament that they're in. But now, now, it is with gladness that we come to the point to the part where we can start talking about the restoration and the rebuilding process of the nation of Israel there in Jerusalem uh, as the wall, as the city, as the temple is rebuilt there in in Judah. Uh, As we go through this, we're going to realize that words literally fail us as we try to describe the glory and the wonder and the faithfulness of God through this whole process. And not only the faithfulness of God, but there, there's the faithfulness of God's people and how they turned to God. They went into captivity with such rebellion, and then those that return, they return uh, with a real dedication to restore what God had promised them there in the nation of Israel. The account of Nehemiah and Ezra is the account of rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and then rebuilding the temple. And I'm here to tell you, it was not easy. There was so much opposition from the world during this time. It was not easy. Um, and bottom line is, things really haven't, hasn't changed that much. The world does not want to see God's people succeed. The world does not want to see God's people successful. And so we're going to see in Nehemiah, we're going to see in Ezra, much of the type of opposition that our enemy, Satan, and the world, no, believe me, that he's the God of this world. He's the prince and power of the air. He's the one that leads this world in its rebellion against, against God. And we need to understand that the world will never accept God's purpose and plan. It will always be in rebellion until 
Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom where he rules and reigns as king of kings and the Lord of lords. Satan will be the god of this world until the Lord takes over. And that day is coming. I think it's fast approaching. You know, as I was studying and I was look, reading this and, and I was putting this together and, and I was studying the scripture and, and, and thinking about all this, thinking about all the opposition from the world down through the ages and all the things that have taken place and the rebellion and the wickedness of man and the persecution that the church and God's people has endured down through the years, it's been pretty awful, hasn't it? But I got to thinking, I, does the church, does God's people, uh, especially since this dispensation, the grace of God, uh, speaking primarily of that right now, uh, has it suffered the most under persecution or when the world embraces the church? You ever thought about that? That the church just seems to do well during persecution when it's time to take a stand when it's time to be courageous in their defense of the gospel, to be that individual that stands and, and, and commits themselves to the Lord and, and suffers the persecution, the church seems to grow. It's during the time when the world reaches out and sort of embraces the church that it goes soft, that it starts getting comfortable in the world, and enjoying the things of the world? I think it's more dangerous when the church is embraced by the world, and what happens is the church starts embracing the world's standards and gets so comfortable that it really does not want the purpose and plan of God to go forward. That's just my observation. But in the book of Nehemiah, God led Nehemiah to restore the wall in the city. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. In a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon him. So here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, you know the story, Nehemiah goes to, to Nebuchadnezzar, he's his cupbearer, and Nebuchadnezzar can tell that he's depressed. He says, what's the matter? Nehemiah tells him about the suffering. Uh, chapter 1 talks about the suffering that he, he understands that, that the children of Israel that remained, those that were left behind, those that weren't taken into captivity, and the poorest of the poor, the most downtrodden of the downtrodden, they were left behind. And so they're still there. Nehemiah finds out that they're not doing well, that there is much suffering going on. And and he understands that the wall is in rubble, that the city is in rubble, and his heart is breaking. And Nehemiah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells that, uh, can see that. And so he asks him what's wrong, and he tells him. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, then I'll let you go back. Go back and, and, and fix it, basically, is what he says. Look at Nehemiah 6.15. 
Nehemiah 6, verse 15. Nehemiah 6, 15. Chapter 2, Nehemiah, Nebuchadnezzar says, go, Nehemiah, and fix it. Nehemiah 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished in, 52, in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elul, in 50 and 2 days. So Nehemiah goes back. He takes on that project. And the wall is completed in 52 days. Uh, we know from Daniel 9, we're not going to go there this time. It seems like we've gone there every, every sermon. Daniel 9 is an is a important prophecy where uh, this, this point happening in, happening in the history of, of Israel gives them a date, gives them a timeline of what is going to occur. That's talking about this here. So Nehemiah is sent to Judah in order to fix the wall and to fix the city because they need that protection before the temple is to be built there. It is Ezra that's going to go 28 years after Nehemiah goes. It's Ezra. I'm going to show you where Ezra pops into here. Where Ezra and Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel actually goes and builds uh, Ezra goes as the priest, as the spiritual leader, to restore that, that worship. So you have, uh, you have Nehemiah, he goes, he repairs the wall, and there's much opposition. We're going to talk about that in a second. Much opposition that Nehemiah faces. A lot of bullying that goes on that he faces. So Nehemiah 6, 15, the wall is built. Look at Nehemiah 7. Start with verse 1. And it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Drop down to verse 4. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. The houses weren't built. They were not living in their sealed houses at this time. But the city was great, but there were few people. The reason there were few people is because Ezra hadn't brought the 42,000 with him there to Jerusalem. That's why I believe that Nehemiah came before, before Ezra. And it's in the, the prophet Haggai is prophesying during this time. This is where Ezra shows up. In Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, here on out, we have the ministry of Ezra prophesy, uh, preaching and teaching and training the people. But you have two prophets during this time, Haggai and Malachi, that are really behind the people, pushing them, telling them, you've got to get the temple rebuilt. You've got to get the temple rebuilt. And Haggai even says, you people, you're here. The temple's foundations haven't even been laid yet. And you're living in houses that have ceilings. You've come and you've taken care of your own and you've neglected God's. So it's Haggai and it's Zechariah that lambast them. So they're active during this time. This is when Ezra comes along. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Look at Ezra. What a man of God, Ezra. Of course, so is Nehemiah. But Ezra, wow, what a man he is. Look at Ezra 1.1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That fits here in Nehemiah 7. And Ezra's going to be able to go and say, God sent us here to rebuild the temple. And if you don't like it, go talk to King Cyrus. Because Cyrus is the one that's going to give him permission to go and build that, the temple. Look at, look at Ezra 6, 13. And Ezra 1, 1 has permission to go and build the temple. Look at Ezra 6, verse 13. Then Tedni, governor on this side of the river, and Shethor Benimzai, that guy, and their companions according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. And the elders of the Jews built it, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, and the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. And they built it and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. It took them three different kings to get through it. Cyrus is the one that told them to go. Darius is the one that had to go, oh yeah, you you need my permission. And Artaxerxes also gave them permission. Three different kings during that time span. Now, we need to remember that Nehemiah carried covers about 52 years. Uh, Ezra covers about 24 years. And so during that time, these different kings uh, were were serving. Not going to go into it now, but one of the things, just when you're studying on this song, because I know you're all going to rush home, and you're you're just going to, you're not going to watch football, you're going to run home, you're going to take your Bibles, and you're going to look to verify this. But just so that you know, during this time, there were two Dariuses and two Artaxerxes. That was like saying the Pharaoh. And there, Egypt had a whole bunch of Pharaohs, and they had different names. And if you really want to do more research, you can go and, uh, and, and look up the, uh, the stone of Bishtun or the pillar of Bishtun, and it's all written on there just in case you're really interested. I haven't done that. Or you can take Bollinger's Companion Bible and look at Appendix 57, and he spells it out. So if you have a Companion Bible, uh, you're in like Flint. I mean, you're, it's, it's there for you. And you can see that there were a number of these world leaders. So it kind of gets confusing as you're going through there. But here's the bottom line you need to remember. There was a whole lot of opposition, especially to the temple, and it was the the. The world, those that were there did not want to see God's people return. They did not want to see the temple built. And so they stirred all up, all sorts of controversy up. And they even wrote to, to Darius, Darius, you're not going to believe what's going on here. And Darius said, well, I'm going to check this out. And then uh, Darius said, hey, I went and checked the records. And sure enough, Cyrus told them they could, they could do that. As a matter of fact, look at, uh, I, I, I think this is, this is good. Look at Ezra. Chapter 6. 
the enemies of God's people had sent a letter to Darius, and they said, you're not going to believe what these Jews are doing here. They are rebuilding this temple, and they are going to cause you all sorts of trouble. And Darius basically says, hey, I'll check that out. And because by this time, Cyrus was no longer the king. And, and this Darius says, I, I'll, I'll check it out. And he goes, and he confirms that, yes, they had permission to get it done. Ezra chapter 6, verse 7, let the work of this house of God alone, is what he tells those that did not want them to build. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in this place. And he goes on down to say, verse 12, look at verse 11. Also I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down upon his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this, and the God that hath caused his name to dwell there destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and destroy the house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree, let it be done with speed. Darius, was, he, he was serious about that house being built. This was God at work. This was God saying, I said it was going to happen. I'm going to happen. I'm going to use this pagan king to do it. And nothing is going to stand in my way of getting this done. Look at Ezra chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 24. Here's what happened. Ezra chapter 4, verse 21. The enemies of God's people stood up and said, you've got to stop doing this. You can't do this. This is what Darius says. Give me now commandment to cause these men to cease and that the city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. That's Darius. Verse 24. This, this is the government telling those that went back to Jerusalem to build the temple, to build the city, Verse 24, then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We just read about Darius going, let him alone, let him do it. But here's what I think is interesting about God's people and the attitude that God's people need to have. And we already know that it was Haggai and Zechariah that came on strong and said, get her done. So the end of verse 4 we have them, they ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, so it ceased. But look at chapter 5, verse 1 of uh, Ezra. Talking about Christ being the great restorer. Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shittel and Joshua, the son of, of uh, Jazadok, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. Wait a minute. Darius had just said, stop, quit, don't build, don't, don't do it. The, God's people come along and said, get your hammer. Build. Why have you stopped? Why, why have you not... And, 
when you study all the different months and years and dates on here, it was 16 years between verse 24 and chapter 5, verse 1. 16 years went by. And that's when Haggai, and they, they all show up and they say, we've got to get it done. We've got to get it done. Verse 3 of chapter 5. And the same time came to them Tetanai, governor. He's been a problem. He's been a thorn the whole time. Governor on this side of the river and, and Shethabazani. That's easy for you to say. I'm just glad nobody here has that name because I'd have to call you Mr. Smith, I guess. But anyway. And their companions and said thus unto them, Who has commanded you to build this hall or this house and to make up this wall? So I can just imagine them coming to them and saying, who gave you permission to do this? Because they know that Darius has said, stop it. Hey, and Darius was not a king to mess with. We've already found that these, these kings could be pretty ruthless. They were power hungry. They were pretty much all sovereign. And whatever they said went. Hey, if you can order somebody to be thrown into a lion's den, if you can order somebody to be cast into a uh, the fiery furnace, you, you've got real power. And so the people were afraid. They weren't going to go against what these kings said except God told them to get it done. God, get it done. And so here are these people, I'm not going to repeat their names again, but they came and said, who told you to do this? Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. And thus they returned us answer, saying... We are the, basically, this is the guy writing to Darius, tattling on them. This, this is what they told these people that came and said, you better stop it. You better quit this right now. And so they're writing to Darius and saying, here's what they told us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and build the house that was builded these many years ago, which a great king of Israel builded and set up. And then they they, they talked more about Nebuchadnezzar and all the stuff that went on. And so Darius investigated this, and this was Darius saying, let them alone. Let them build the house. Let them do what they are called to do. And so they got started. We know how the story goes. They got it done. They got the wall built. They got the city of Jerusalem built. They got the temple built but not without opposition. And I'm going to tell you, there's nothing new under the sun. Satan uses the same ploys today that he used back then. He uses the same tactics. When God's Word tells us to put on the whole armor of God, that we might be able to stand against the cunning devices of the devil, the wiles of the devil, I'm telling you, here are some of those cunning devices Satan knows what he's doing. He knows how to discourage. He knows how to attack. He knows how to cause people of God to go weak in the faith and step back and go, we just can't do this. Last week we talked about the fact the first thing that Satan has the world do against God's people is laugh. You say, here's what God wants me to do. The world's going to laugh at you and go... That's just ridiculous. The next thing we find as we look through uh, Nehemiah, the, the other, their laughing didn't get them stopped, so they start ridiculing them. They start mocking them. They start making fun of them. 
You know, one of the things that interests me, well, it doesn't really interest me, may, amazes me. Not sure it amazes me either. Not sure what it does, but it makes me wonder. That's one of the things that makes, what makes me wonder. Have you ever noticed that in the world, a Hollywood actor can do all sorts of perverted, horrible things and the world applauds and the world goes, oh, he's just good old boys being good old boys. Athletes. You let an athlete do something terribly wrong and the world kind of snickers a little bit and well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. You let a man of God, you let a Christian jaywalk and if the world sees it, it comes unglued. Did you see that? They start pointing an accusing finger and they try to look at believers and they try to make them to be the most evil, wicked things that ever walked on this planet. The world can do and get away with anything and that's just so cute. But you let a believer do a slight thing and, and hey, we're all broken. Amen? We all sin. But boy, isn't it wonderful to be forgiven of that sin? To be made a new creation in Christ? See, that's the thing. We're not perfect except in Christ, and I'm glad of that. But in myself, there is nothing perfect about me. But there's everything perfect about the God that I'm part of, that I'm in Him. And how exciting that is to know that we have that salvation, that position. The other third thing we saw in Nehemiah, Nehemiah the world does, it laughs, it ridicules, and then physical threats. If the world doesn't get its way, there are physical threats that are, are issued. Look at uh, Nehemiah 4.7. Nehemiah 4.7. But it came to pass that when Slan, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breachers began to be stopped. They were very wroth. And they conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. We set a watch against them day and night because of them. So they issued these threats. They came against them. They were going to do bodily harm. Let's, let's threaten to do bodily harm. That'll get them to stop. But I'm telling you, if God be for you, who can be against you? Amen? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6 said, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Isn't that great to have those promises? So here they were saying, hey, let's attack them. They've got that going that it's almost let us, we outnumber them. Let us, let's go and, and do them physical harm. We'll shut them up. I don't know if you guys remember. We put a sign out on our message board. This was many years ago. Um, that the sign on the message board says, Firemen only rescue... No, firemen rescue, only Jesus saves. Who all was going here when that, we put that sign up? Firemen rescue, only Jesus saves. 
And is that a true statement? Yeah, that's a true statement. Do you know we got over 200 messages on our phone threatening, screaming, cursing? We even had bomb threat. We even had to call the bomb squad here in St. Louis to bring their bomb-sniffing dogs and go around and sniff to make sure that there was no bomb. We told our people that that had happened. The following Sunday, we had the largest crowd that we've ever had here. So bring on those threats because God's people, at least in this church, they know how to respond to those kind of threats. There was no bomb, by the way. But the world's going to threaten. The world's going to try to frighten you. The world's going to try to tell you that your God is not nearly as big and powerful as He is. But I got news for you. He actually is. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me, will do unto me. So there's opposition. The next ploy of our enemy. All those others are what the world does. And boy, we can stand against those, can't we? Let the world laugh. Let the world snicker. Let the world ridicule. Let the world threat. We don't care. We're going to stand for Christ. See, when the world comes against us, we can rally and we can sing onward Christian soldiers and we can sing victory in Jesus and there's a whole lot that we can do to bolster one another and get excited. But you know one of his other ploys? Discouragement. Discouragement. There in Nehemiah 4.10. Look at 4.10. They just issued their threat 4.10, and Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they shall not know, neither see till we come in the midst of them and slay them and cause the work to cease. I'm not sure if they said it exactly that way, but that's, that's pretty much. They got discouraged they complained because the stones were crumbling. It was all at the material that they were called on to use was all burned up. They tried to stack the stones and they would crumble, and so they started whining. They started complaining, and the discouragement nearly, well, it did more harm than all the other. See, we discourage one another sometimes, and we shouldn't. You let a problem come along, and boy, I'm telling you what the church is going to do. It's going to focus on that problem, on that issue, rather than the, with God, all things are possible, and see, this is just God having an opportunity to show us His, pipe, His power and His might. See, that's how we ought to look at it. C.S. Lewis, in one of his Chronicles of Narnia books, I don't know if you ever read The Silver Chair or The Last Battle, but there is a character that I think sums up so many Christians sometimes. He's a marsh wiggle. His name is Puddle Glum. Ever heard of Puddle Glum? 
puddle glum was everything was going bad no matter what happened it was going bad and and he just represents so many believers today they they and and he really was used of god but he complained everything was a problem every issue was going to cause destruction and and it wasn't going to get done and he was so whiny he was kind of like eeyore are you familiar with eeyore where there's everything is dark everything is hopeless i'm telling you that is satan's biggest tool against believers today is discourage discourage it has been it always will be but what we need to do is remember that with, all, with God, all things are possible. That with God, nothing is impossible. Number two, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them or the called according to His purpose. And we need to remember that in all things and for all things, we're to give thanks. Do you see how that takes the teeth out of Satan's ploy against us? That if you're, no matter what comes into your life, no matter what happens, that if you are praising God for all things, all of a sudden that bite is not going to be very ferocious. If you're thanking God in all things, regardless of what it is, Satan's bite is not going to have the effect. Lord, I'm going to praise you in this because I know what your word says, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You try that, and all of a sudden, that discouragement seems to just be blown away. The other opposition, real quick, the other opposition was financial. Nehemiah 5.1 says there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. The Jews that came back uh, started taking advantage of those who were there financially. Started loaning the money. They got deep in debt. They couldn't pay it. And I'm telling you, one of the ploys of Satan, one of the devices of Satan is debt. Get God's people in debt. And then all of a sudden you're focusing on that debt and making that, uh, making, paying that debt and you can't concentrate on the things of God. Man, we see it, we see it here brightly. Boy, Nehemiah just comes unglued. What? You're charging usury? I mean, this was really high interest. So the people were suffering. They couldn't afford their houses. They couldn't afford their food. They couldn't feed their children. And Nehemiah comes and he just straightens them out. Says, you've got to quit it. You've got to be financially responsible. Stop this. It's another ploy of Satan. The other opposition was Treachery. Nehemiah 6.1 and 6.10, uh, their, tre- their treachery to destroy the leadership, to try to get them off to the side so that they could kill them. But fortunately, the Nehemiah, he was too shrewd for that. And he says, I'm not going to go there with you. I'm not going to submit myself to that. That's not going to happen. Well, that didn't happen. The, treasure, the treachery didn't happen. 
So they said, oh, let's slander the leaders. Let's, let's start a whispering campaign and let's start bad-mouthing the leaders. Let's let Let's tell them things about Nehemiah and tell them things about Ezra. I'm sure they did this with Ezra, but certainly with Nehemiah. Let's, let's make up some juicy stuff about their leaders and the people will believe it and they'll get depressed and they won't follow them and we win. Folks, I can't tell you how often that scenario comes to pass. And we just cannot allow that to happen. So whether it be laughing whether it be ridiculing, whether it be any of the others, we have to keep our focus on the project, on the task that God would have us to do, whether it be physical threats, whether it be discouragement, whether it be financial issues, whether it be treachery, slander, we need to stay focused on God. You get to Ezra, and after all of those things had taken place, there was one more ploy that Satan was going to introduce. There was one more thing he had up his sleeve and he was going to do. And Ezra and Zerubbabel brought all the people back to Jerusalem. Thousands, thousands came back. And you know what they started doing again? Sinning. But you know how they started sinning? They started marrying and intermarrying with the wives around there and all the false gods. That They were still involved in that. And the, the Jewish men came in and they looked around and went, Wow, she's a lot prettier than she is. I'm going to ask your daddy if I can marry you. And so that's it. They got away from God's plan, from God's purpose. And the reason, and, and this was... This was after they'd been there for a while. The walls had been built. The city was built. The temple was built. They had already experienced the Passover. There had already been a revival. But boy, they, they fell right back into that same sin. And that's when Malachi came along. He's the last of those Old Testament prophets. And that's when Malachi comes along. And when we get into Malachi, we're going to talk a little bit more about his message to them for doing what they were doing. But I want, to, I want to show you something from God's people. That was the bad response. I want to show you what the response of God's people should be always when it comes to serving God, when it comes to putting God first. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 8, the wall has been built. The city is in the process of being built. The temple, the foundation is in the process of being laid. Verse 8. They come to the reading of the law. God has done exactly what He said He was going to do. He promised them, I'm going to bring you back. And our faithful God had brought them back. All those who wanted to come back, they were allowed to come back. Nehemiah 8, 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. Unity. Solomon purpose. 
Psalm 133.1 says, How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. That's what they were experiencing here as they observed the faithfulness of God. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all they could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month, demonstrating the importance. If you can understand, you needed to be there. Families. That's one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to have our family day worship when we don't have a junior church, but all the kids come in. They sit with their mom and dad. They listen to their mom and dad sing. They listen to their mom and dad pray. They watch their mom and dad worship. How important that is. See, the things that are important to you, mom and daddy, are going to be important to your babies. The things that are important that you put as a priority, your kids will do the same. I guarantee you. Verse 3, And he read therein upon the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and all those that could understand. I think he repeats that because that's important. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And I think this is the book of the law. This is the one that Josiah had found. This is the one that Moses had written on. This was an important document. And when they understood that Ezra had it. Matter of fact, Ezra is probably the priest that compiled all of the Old Testament books together. That was one of his tasks. I mean, somebody had to do it and... and And there are a lot of people, a whole lot smarter than me, that believe it was Ezra that compiled from Genesis all the way to uh, all the Old Testament. That when it was finally, the Old Testament was uh, pulled together, it was Ezra that did that. Therein, before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, they read the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood 13 different priests. Him being 14, and that's the number they were supposed to be. So they were getting ready for the temple and for the worship and all that was supposed to be going on there. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. It was out of respect. It was out of honor. They understood the seriousness of the Word of God and what was being said. It was nothing to sneer at. It was nothing to laugh at. It was nothing to threaten. It's the power of God. It's the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it is breathing. It is alive. It is inspired. And I think that's the reason they had this reaction. And all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord. And the great God of, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. With lifting up of their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In humility, they understood where God had brought them from. And what he intended to do as he fulfilled his promises. Folks, this is revival. This is what the beginning of revival looks like when they recognize God's word. 
Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. But real quick, and then we'll be done. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. You know, I pray often, Lord, bless me. Lord, bless our congregation. Lord, bless my family. Lord, bless this nation. I think sometimes we start praying that and we sort of need to flip that. See, we're so concerned with God, you blessing me, that the truth of the matter is, it should be, Lord, I want to bless you. I want to serve you. That's what he was doing. And Ezra blessed the Lord. And one of these days, we're going to preach a series. Not exactly sure it's going to take us a long time. We, we're not even out of the Old Testament. We still have the New Testament. But one of these days, we need to talk about what do you do to bless God? The life you live. What, what is it that blesses God? Shouldn't that be what we as a church desire to do? And Ezra blessed the Lord. Look at Psalm 31. Uh, uh, 103. Psalm 103. Then we'll be done. Psalm 103. Verse 1. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all thy iniquities. Who heals all thy diseases. Who redeems thy life from destruction. Who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. We need to learn how to bless the Lord with our worship. Not focus on, Lord, bless me, but I want to bless you. And you, know, you can only start doing that if you know Him as Savior. The first thing to bless Him, to gladden Him, to make Him happy, matter of fact, it makes all of heaven happy as they rejoice over one sinner coming to him. Wow. The angels in heaven rejoice. If you don't know Christ this morning, let me encourage you to do what the Bible says you need to do, and that is, by faith, believe that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. You definitely want to be part of the family of God. More importantly, you definitely want to be part of the church, the body, which is the body of Christ. And the way you become part of that body of Christ is by faith, believing the gospel. What is the gospel? That he died for you, that he was buried, and he rose again. And when you believe that, God does a work in your life. He places you in that body. He seals you. He baptizes you by the Holy Spirit, and he makes you righteous. In Him. Wow. He, he sanctifies you. He glorifies you. He redeems you. He justifies you. Those are all His works that He does the moment you believe by faith. Folks, the world's hatred and bitterness, I'm here to tell you, is only going to heat up. 
We need to get ready for it as a church. And the way you get ready for it is to know what God's Word says and what our reaction should be. So when the world laughs, we respond properly. When the world ridicules, when the world threatens, when the world does all it's going to do to thwart the purposes of God in our lives, we stand courageous. We stand firm. And we do exactly what God's Word tells us. We strap on the whole armor of God that we might, and we didn't even get to Ephesians 6, that's your homework assignment. Go home and read Ephesians 6 because to do all the things we just said you're going to need to do, or to, to stand against, you're going to need to put on the whole armor of God. It's just the way it works. Start reading in Ephesians 6, verse 10. See what God's Word says. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your Word. Father, we thank you that there is blood on every page. That, Father, from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of the redemption of man by you, Father, who loves us and who was willing to pay that supreme sacrifice to buy my pardon, to redeem me, to redeem us to yourself. Father, we thank you for that this morning. And, Father, we pray your blessings on this congregation, but more than that, Father, we as a congregation desire to bless you. We want you to be glorified. We want you to be exalted by our worship, by our praise, by our actions, by our activities. Father, we want you to be the one that people see in our lives. Father, we want to be a testimony of your mercy and of your greatness. Now, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's never by faith trusted you, that they won't leave this building without trusting in you, Father. And we pray all these things in Christ's holy and most precious name. Amen.